Welcome to the Lumpin Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin Radio each week. This week, we chatted about literature and translation, discussed new ways of seeing the world, and learned how the planet remembers its inhabitants. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin Week in Review for February 12th, 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke with Julia Sanchez, the translator of the new novel Earth Eater by Dorothy Reyes. Sanchez discussed the challenges in translating hyperlocal dialect, how translators have to let authors take up space in their heads, and the quiet horror of the novel in question. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, is every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Today, we're going to be talking with Julia Sanchez. She is the translator of a brand new book out from the Argentinian writer Dolores Reyes. It's called Earth Eater. It's out from Harper via Publishing. That's an imprint of HarperCollins, as you probably could have figured out on your own. Julia, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So it's a little unusual that we talk to a translator uh, on the show. We've done it before. But uh, the book is actually fairly interesting. And I think one of the things I kind of wanted to start out with you, just for the benefit of our listeners who probably are not that familiar um, with the different types of dialects and different vernaculars of, of regional Spanish, could you take our listeners through maybe some of the challenges of translating a novel from Buenos Aires as opposed to, say, a novel that you might receive in Spanish from Mexico City or even from the Bronx? I think what was challenging about this book was less that it was set in Buenos Aires and more that it was set in, like, on the periphery of Buenos Aires in the outskirts and the um, slums, because the language there is, I guess, what some people might call non-standard and really rich with um, very location-specific vernacular that was, a lot of which was completely new to me, and I had to do a lot, a, a good deal of research. And um, if you know Latin America at all, you know that we mostly communicate via WhatsApp, so the author and I would send each other WhatsApp messages and she would send me voice notes with explanations for certain expressions. Um, but I, I had done a book that was similarly vernacular before by a Brazilian author and I had landed on a philosophy which was to give the readers sort of stepping stones and um, language that was familiar while also creating new language that would place them somewhere else without it being, say, reminiscent of the kind of English spoken in, spoken in the Bronx. Um, I don't know if it was successful. I'd ho- I hope it was. Um, it's a bit risky and hard. I hope I, that answers it. <laughs> I, I thought it was successful. I, I thought the... the book read very well um I, I wanted to let's talk a little bit about Dolores um I did a, you know I to be totally honest I wasn't aware of the femicide issue in Argentina I, I, we get a lot of news here you know of course from Mexico um I read a statistic yesterday it was like one woman is murdered every 32 hours um in Argentina and Dolores is a an activist and a writer um do you know much about Dolores can you tell us a little bit about her before we dig into the novel I probably know as much as you do. I know that she's from um, the outskirts of Buenos Aires, that she is the mother of seven, I believe. Yeah, I that. I that's <laughs> a lot of kids. She thanks them all at the end. I was like, wow, that's a big thing. 
And I don't know if this is true or not, but I was told that she's very mysterious about who the fathers are, which is a position I would like to believe. Um, she, Yes, she's an activist. Um, from what I have seen in interviews and gathered from Instagram, she goes to all of the protests that are... Um, pro-choice so the there was a law recently passed in buenos aires that stopped making abortion illegal and she was at all the protests um aside from that i listened to her interview so that i could figure out the the way she spoke and she like the protagonist is also sort of taciturn and she chooses her words carefully um but she that's, also studied I, classical literature, right? That's, that, I think that's what it said in the bio. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in the bio it says she studied classical literature, and it, it's it kind of reminds me of the Ferrante books. If you've read them, you know Ferrante. Um, I think she studied classical literature as well, and she has her story set in the slums of Naples. And it it it's there's a lot of slang, um, but there's there's some. There's a lot behind everything. I, f I found your translation to be uh, sparse, but in in a good way. There were you were, you were only showing, or we were only seeing the tips of things, and there was a lot of history and background to the characters that you didn't see, but you could you could feel. Um, I don't know if um, there were if her reading of classical literature like bolstered her her writing method or not but it, it seemed like you were dealing with a pro i was surprised that was a first-time author yeah she she also participated in some writing workshops with um another very well-known argentinian author called selva almada who also has a very spare um way of writing and sets a lot of her novels in, outside urban centers um with very terse characters um, but you can definitely tell that she reads widely and has some training, but that she also takes a lot of her writing from ex lived experience. Like I can imagine her with some of her kids, um, in the background playing, uh, is it the PlayStation? They're playing Mortal yeah. Kombat on yeah, PlayStation. Yeah. Um, yeah. you can definitely see that she's taken a lot of this from, observation um from from just watching young people and how they act and how they speak um well it's interesting i i was going to ask you how you were matched up with her but um i happen to be a big fan of argentine comic books which are fairly popular in that country and it struck me reading your translation of her work and i would have been interested to to see it in the original spanish she um her writing, at least in the way you presented it, struck me as very reminiscent of the procedurals, the police procedurals that make up a very big segment of Argentina's comic book publishing output. They're very kind of surreal and sparse. There's, I wouldn't call them magic realism. I time think is strange. Time is, is very odd, however, in these books. Um, you know, the um, there's a famous one that keeps getting rewritten and rewritten from Argentina that is called, um, and I'm going to mangle the name of it, but I believe it's the Earth Knot, uh, that there were, there were definite similarities in the way information was presented. And these are, you know, un unlike our comic books now in America, th these are million 
selling things. You know, they're very popular on the streets there. They're all over the place. People do see them. And I, I wondered as the mother of a number of young children, you know, how if she was influenced by that or if you guys had discussed that. And again, just coming back to my original question, were you guys matched by the publisher or was this a project that you had heard about and, and were interested in personally before you saw it? I, so to start with the comics, um, I can only assume from what you've said that maybe she was influenced. Um, I, it's not something that we spoke of though. While I was translating, I was very aware of, to me, it has a sort of noir feel, Yeah. <laughs> even though there's magical realism to it. You know, if it's Latin America, people like to focus on the magical realism, but there's a sort of, um, I guess not hard-boiled detective quality, but the heroine acts almost more like a hard-boiled detective than anything else. Um, and in terms of how I was matched, so one of my jobs is to know what's being published. I read for literary scouts. Um, I know what's being published bef years before it's translated into English, and this book had been on my radar. And then the publisher reached out to me, I think, because of the work I had done translating The Sun on My Head by Giovanni Marchins, which also uses a lot of slang and vernacular. Um, and I translated a sample for them, and they really liked it and hired me to translate it. I wanted to focus on the fairness of the prose, on the fact that there's so little writing, but it contains so much mystery. Um, and I think that maybe that's what they liked about my sample. Chuck Mertz chatted with writer and architect Keller Easterling on new ways of seeing the world and its possibilities. Keller discussed how states build methods of control using architecture and why buildings reflect a nation's statecraft. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Last Wednesday, the Associated Press reported planned legislation to establish new business areas in Nevada would allow technology companies to effectively form separate local governments. Democratic 
Party Governor Steve Sisolak announced a plan to launch so-called innovation zones in Nevada to jumpstart the state's economy by attracting technology firms. The zones would permit companies with large areas of land to form governments carrying the same authority as counties, including the ability to impose taxes, form school districts and courts, and provide government services. The measure to further economic development with the alternative form of local government has not yet been introduced in the legislature. Democratic Governor Sisolak pitched the concept in the State of the State address on January 19th. The plan would bring in new businesses at the forefront of groundbreaking technologies without the use of tax abatements or other publicly funded incentive packages that previously helped Nevada attract companies like Tesla. The governor named Blockchains LLC as a company that had committed to developing a smart city in an area east of Reno after the legislation is passed. How concerned, Keller, should we be about the government giving the power of governance to technology companies? What effect could that have on democracy in general in the United States? This is hell, yes. Um, that uh, that scenario that you almost sounds like a, a sort of cartoon scenario, uh, exaggerated cartoon scenario of... Uh, the common phenomenon that we were talking about from extra state craft, um, the creation of um, extra state zones where the domestic laws for uh, the, either the state or the entire country are, are um, exempted. Um, and there's deregulation of labor and environmental law. Um, I it's, think it's very dangerous that this is now a kind of normal state of affairs, um, this state of ex exemption from law in around the world. Of course, it's a uh, makes the free zone and there's a huge installation of free zones into the engine room of of labor abuse and and neoliberal power. And the example you mention is is no exception, even though it seems almost more exaggerated, uh, unveiled, or uh, than than some. And there's this tendency for people to think that, well, there, this would be something that would be promoted by a Republican, that this would be something that would be promoted by a conservative. Is this idea of these extra states is does that get bipartisan support? Well, I think a lot of people are not entirely aware, uh, but but yes, it does get bipartisan support in in trade compacts uh, that we make with the rest of the world. Um, I, I'm not sure that the the actual mechanisms and the consequences of those mechanisms are entirely clear to many people, uh, as they are also embedded in in physical space. And you uh, write that against all in your new book, again, the name of your new book is Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World. We're speaking with Keller Easterling, and you can find out more about Keller at her website, kellereasterling.com. You write against all reasons. Some of culture's intractable dilemmas seem to create 
political, social, and environmental impossibilities from unchecked concentrations of authoritarian power to organizational cross-purposes to extremes of inequality and climate cataclysms. Consider just a few of those, these as they are inscribed in spaces and territories while global warming is increasingly self-evident continues to attract naysayers. Typhoons, hurricanes, wildfires have given the world a dramatic preview of some inevitable and lethal effects as scientists report that greenhouse gas emissions are accelerating like a speeding freight train. But governments around the world nevertheless defy global compacts attempting to alleviate the situation. So we recognize that there is a problem, but we do nothing about it and not we don't apply the pressure on the government to make those uh, our real concerns and to address those problems. This is, you know, something that has been brought up by our guests on our show as far back as I can remember, back to the 1990s. How does design contribute to the intractability of crises like climate change, the science behind which has not changed since the 1980s? Well, I'm I'm trying to create a special relationship with the reader to sort of go along with me and think about those habits of mind that are ingrained, deeply ingrained in culture that are some of the reasons why we we don't seem to change. Um, um, trying to think about um, our kind of modern enlightenment mind that's always looking for the right answer, that's looking for solutions, that's looking for quantitative proofs, that's also looking for what is new, um, looking for uh, holding on to a kind of ideational monotheism in a way. Um, and so in a, what medium design is doing is, is trying to kind of unfocus eyes and look not just at objects with shapes and outlines, problems, declarations, but look at the interplay between things, not just look at nouns, but look at verbs, if you will, look at the activity between things. So as a designer, usually we are to, trained to make things with shapes and outlines, but this is designing the interplay between things. And so this very contemplative book is, is wondering if one inverts that habit of mind, looking not just at objects, but looking at the interplay between objects, might you also invert some um, approaches to these intractable problems? And, and you're right that rather than only registering information in lexical, geometric, or quantitative expressions that present a stable and reliable solution, medium design uses forms of interplay to generate a combinant chemistry of spatial elements. Interplay is an expression of interactivity within an ecology over time. What is missed when we do not recognize that interplay and only focus on the lexical, geometric, or quantitative expressions? Well, I think, well, there's many things that are, that are missed. Um, uh, one of them also has to do with uh, how power can work, how a power like Trump can work. Um, um, uh, Trump keeps everyone uh, oscillating between the kinds of closed loops and binaries that are part of that enlightenment thinking. Um, he can tell lies that, uh, um, not just telling one lie, but telling many lies that creates a kind of slippery platform on which reasonable people seem to slip and slide. So it's trying to look um, beyond the solutionist thinking 
to look at many other ways in which we can resourcefully recombine uh, things within our world, things that uh, may even seem like cast-offs, uh, problems, um, look at ways in which we um, should not always be looking for the new technology, but looking for, in, in other words, not looking for the new technology as the most sophisticated thing, but look at the way in which combinations between technologies are sophisticated. Look at the way in which spatial variables, spatial interactions in heavy space, uh, lumpy, heavy space that we all live in, might uh, be a way to carry our value and our relationships in interplay beyond the financial abstractions that have often been quite dangerous. And I want to get to this idea of binaries and loops so people can understand these kinds of logic. You write that in the face of obvious failure, organizations assume that its solutions and guiding logics were simply not applied with sufficient rigor. The loop was not tight enough. The group was not ideologically pure enough. The organization then circles the wagons and vilifies the non-conforming elephant, ele, element, not non-conforming elephant, totally different thing. Whenever it fails, it's because it wasn't done enough. So what? what's the fallacy within that logic? Because I have heard that countless times. For instance, I've actually heard someone arguing, that the privatization of healthcare in the United States doesn't work, it costs too much and makes medical needs inaccessible because the government never gave free reign of the market to healthcare. So what is the logical fallacy? Because I'm tired of hearing people make these kind of similar arguments. Well, I'm arguing or I'm inviting the reader to think with me a little bit about the way in which when we have this kind of solutionist frame of mind, we're looking for uh, the universal particle, the elementary particle, the one and only answer. Um, And, you know, we only, uh, you know, this, this kind of needing to be right then lashes out with a binary fight against any non-conforming element. Um, We see these in the free zones where uh, neoliberal power is made, a situation where it's only circulating compatible information in a kind of closed loop. And any contradiction to that, like the needs of the worker, if those enter, then the the worker must be vilified as the other. Uh, Nations. Uh, also like to reinforce their oneness, their 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 power, their exceptionalism, and anything like the immigrant or any contradiction that must be vilified and uh, and uh, treated as a as an enemy. Um, and maybe even all of us, even in our everyday lives, like to remain whole in this way, don't like a contradiction and lash out with a binary fight. Uh, we certainly see it now in 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 the United States, where there is someone who, because of the, you know, just because of the lure of needing to be right, of needing to be circling in a closed loop, can make people walk off the edge of a cliff, um, and can generate that that fierce binary division. 
can keep people, as I was saying, oscillating between the closed loop of being right, having the answer, having the being the one and only, and the kind of Manichaean struggle between oppositions. Um, and of course, the world is not that way. <laughs> the world is filled with um, many uh, components that can be combined in different ways. It's filled with many different spectrums of power, um, uh, many different influences, uh, no one elementary particle, but many ways of combining things. Um, and so uh, sometimes even in our political parties, we see these purification rituals, you know, well, it was the left, but the left just did, wasn't left enough, you know, um, uh, and this is not a betrayal of the left, but, but an invitation to think outside these loops and binaries. <laughs> your life depends on it. It's frozen, Kyle. It's frozen solid, Kyle. That's... Uh, we'll just have to slide our way there. Gee. We've uh, got to go back. It's like four degrees. Uh, this you, is, you got no gravel in your guts. This is just stupid yeah, and dangerous. We're helping like the environment, you understand? All right, set it up. Come on, We're venturing down Bubbly Creek to 35th Street to do some ice ditching. It's, it's way too cold for this. Ice ditching can only be performed in a deep freeze. We're now man up and shove up, please. We're sliding down a frozen river on you. a mattress strapped to six tires. It's a boat. It's a mattress. Today it's a boat. It's just, whatever this is, it's, it's wrong, man. Stop okay. inside, Petrowski. What? It's a cell phone. Grab it. Oh, it looks like one of them smartphones. Yeah, right over there. Yeah. Okay, got it. That's got it. it. Here. Good. Here you go. Uh, I think that was a good time to remind our listeners that right, whenever we're doing this... Phone. It is not safe, and it should only be performed by professionals like us. And mutiny is also punishable by death, FYI. You want to sing songs? So what is ice stitching, and how does it help the environment? I mean, we don't have an auger, a tackle, no rod. That's right. We just have a 10-gallon bucket and a coal shovel and a bike sickle for some reason. Cut the sails, drop the anchor, we've made it. Uh, all right, which one of these is your make-believe anchor? Is it the shovel, the bucket, or the bike? The one with the chain on it, come on. The bike, okay, it's the bike. Take the bucket, Trotsky, I got this. Ice stitching is a scavenging technique, and it don't have nothing to do with no fishes, so don't think we're going to be fishing. On the banks of Bubbly Creek right here by 35th Street okay, are many hidden gems. These discoveries come in all forms such as the cell phone we just found. There you have it. I'm impressed and actually very relieved that right. you're so into the revitalization that's well, going on around I, here. Is there a website uh, where people can go to help uh, clear debris from the uh, probably, in and around Bubbly Creek? I, I mean, it's not really debris so much. What? What? I mean, well, the cell phone is worth something, or at least useful. How is that not debris? We, I mean, we only pick up the valuable stuff, like the cell phone. Uh, you see, some people will throw stuff out the cars, like 
Phones, cash, lighters, mixed CDs, suitcases, wallets, little bags of powder, wedding rings, all sorts of things that you could use or sell, you know what I mean? We're garbage picking? Ice ditching. What was that? For a high reward, there's always a high risk, John. That was the creek belching from the ghost sheets of all the slaughtered animals that were dumped here back in the day. Thank froze really thick. Oh, Grab my shovel. Grab my shovel, Kyle. Kyle, stand up. No, no, just stand up. Get your feet under it, Kyle. Come on. Hey, I'm going to I'm gonna head back to the co-pro. Why don't you use your treasures to call yourself a cab? I'm out of here, man. This week on The Biden Files, Trump's second impeachment trial begins, Fox is sued for $2.7 billion for defamation, Green is effectively silenced in Congress, Trump apparently asked for an ownership stake in Parler, Georgia opens a criminal investigation, Democrats look to pass their stimulus, and Trump is focused on revenge. These are The Biden Files. Day 17, February 5th. The House and Senate both advanced a budget resolution setting up passage of Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus plan over near-unanimous Republican opposition. The Senate passed the budget blueprint early in the morning, 51 to 50, on a party-line vote after Kamala Harris cast her first tie-breaking vote. The House also passed the resolution later in the day, 219 to 209. Democrats are now eyeing mid-March for final passage of the legislation. That bill received an unexpected boost from an unexpectedly weak economic report. Nearly 18 million Americans continue to receive unemployment benefits of some kind. There are now 10 million fewer jobs today than before the pandemic. President Biden said, quote, it is very clear our economy is still in trouble and many Americans are really hurting. Biden also nixed the Republicans' relief counterproposal, which totaled to less than a third of the $1.9 trillion White House plan. The House voted to remove Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from her two committee seats for her bizarre conspiracy rants and her cheerleading for the assassination of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The House voted 230 to 199, with 11 Republicans joining every Democrat who voted after House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy declined to take away her committee assignments. The vote effectively stripped Green of her influence in Congress. Green responded that Democrats were morons, saying, quote, I woke up early this morning literally laughing, thinking about what a bunch of morons the Democrats plus 11 are for giving someone like me free time. In this Democrat tyrannical government, conservative Republicans have no say on committees anyway. Oh, this is going to be fun. Rupert Murdoch's Fox and three of Fox News' most popular anchors have been sued for defamation. The election technology company Smartmatic filed the suit against Fox Corporation, Fox News, and the anchors Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartiromo, and Janine Pirro. The company is also suing Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. All of them made the case for election fraud either as hosts or guests on Fox programs while representing Trump. The suit is seeking $2.7 billion in damages, and it accuses Fox of conspiracy to defame and disparage Smartmatic and its election technology and software. Trump sought a 40% ownership stake in the social media company Parler in return for joining it. 
The deal was never finalized, but the discussions alone, which occurred while Trump was in office, raised legal concerns with regards to anti-bribery laws. Parler confirmed they offered the Trump Organization a 40% stake in the company. That company was subsequently taken offline after Amazon declined to host the service. And Biden said he was ending a planned troop withdrawal in Germany, as well as support for the Saudi-Lev offensive in Yemen. Biden said at the State Department, quote, America is back and diplomacy is back before pledging to strengthen relationships with U.S. allies, saying they have, quote, atrophied from four years of neglect and abuse. Day 18, February 6th. Mitt Romney and congressional Democrats unveiled unusual but partisan bills that would send at least $3,000 per child to millions of American families in an attempt to combat child poverty. Romney's proposal would provide $4,200 a year for every child up to the age of six and $3,000 per year for every child ages six to 17. Democrats have drafted similar legislation with slightly smaller dollar amounts. In related news, President Biden's proposal to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour would result in 1.4 million job losses in the United States, but lift a million Americans out of poverty and raise the income for 17 million people by 2025. This is according to a new study from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. In its cost assessment, the CBO also said the minimum wage increase could increase the budget deficit by $54 billion over 10 years. The current minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, far less, however, for tipped workers. In a related story, the London School of Economics examined 18 developed countries from 1965 to 2015. Their study showed that the incomes of the rich grew faster in countries where tax rates were lowered instead of raised. In other words, 50 years of tax cuts for the wealthy have failed to, quote, trickle down. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin ordered more than 1,000 active duty troops to help speed up state COVID-19 vaccination efforts. Military personnel are arriving in California. The Pentagon is still weighing a request from FEMA for up to 10,000 troops. Biden also invoked the Defense Production Act this week to increase supplies of vaccine, tests, and protective equipment. Trump had pointedly refused to use the act. And Fox abruptly fired popular host Lou Dobbs just one day after a $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit was filed against the company. Dobbs's program was the top-rated show on Fox Business. And Fox overall saw its highest audiences ever in the past quarter. Trump broke his silence to comment on the firing, saying, quote, Lou Dobbs is and was great. Nobody loves America more than Lou. He had a large and loyal following that will be watching closely for his next move, and that following includes me. Day 19, February 7th. In a surprise, House impeachment managers called on Trump to personally testify during a Senate trial, making an unexpected attempt to question him on record under oath about his actions on January 6th. He is accused of inciting the riot by a mob of his supporters at the Capitol. Trump declined via his lawyers. The House may now look to compel his testimony with a subpoena. President Biden called the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic, including the number of vaccine doses made available, quote, even more dire than we thought. Biden added that it would be difficult to vaccinate most of the U.S. by summer. Biden's race is made harder by the news that the Kent variant is now spreading rapidly across the U.S., doubling roughly every 10 days. That variant is 70% more contagious than earlier forms of the coronavirus, maybe more lethal, and could become the predominant strain in the United States by March. In response, the House asked the Biden administration to release documents related to the Trump administration's response to the pandemic, quote, to understand the full scope and impact of efforts by the Trump White House to suppress coronavirus testing. 
The House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis said the Trump administration had refused to cooperate with its inquiries and that Trump officials, quote, failed to fully comply with two subpoenas and at least 20 document requests from that committee. The House also wants details on advisor Dr. Paul Alexander, who reportedly downplayed the importance of testing people without symptoms and is alleged to have tried to suppress scientific data and pressure members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force to alter their public statements. Day 20, February 8th. David Carrera, whose business ties to Rudy Giuliani had drawn scrutiny, was sentenced to a year in prison for defrauding investors in an insurance startup that paid the former New York mayor and Trump's lawyer hundreds of thousands of dollars for consulting work while he was serving working for Trump. Carrera pleaded guilty to duping investors in a company known as Fraud Guarantee, a business he started with Giuliani's former associate, Lev Parnas. That firm reportedly offered fraud protection and risk management tools to other companies. Prosecutors say it was never operational and that instead, Carrera and Parnas used over $2 million in startup capital for personal expenses. Biden said Trump should not receive intelligence briefings that have been given to former presidents. Quote, I just think that there is no need for him to have the briefings. What value is there in giving him an intelligence briefing? What impact does he have at all other than the fact that he might slip and say something to somebody? President Biden said the United States were to join the United Nations Human Rights Council. The U.S. withdrew from the council in 2018 under Trump after the U.N.'s human rights chief called Trump's policy of separating children at the border unconscionable. At the time, Trump responded by calling the council, quote, a cesspool of political bias that is a hypocritical and self-serving organization that makes a mockery of human rights and is not worthy of its name. Michigan's Republican Party reportedly quietly welcomed the support of paramilitary groups and other vigilantes. Prominent party members formed bonds with militias or gave tacit approval to armed activists using intimidation in a series of rallies and confrontations around that state. Six Trump supporters from Michigan have been arrested in connection with the storming of the Capitol. The chief organizer of that protest, Michonne Maddox, sent 19 buses to the Capitol on January 5th. She was recently re-elected as co-chair of the state Republican Party. The lead organizer of the April 30 armed protest in Michigan that led to charges being filed and an assassination plot against Governor Gretchen Whitmer is Ryan Kelly. Last week, he announced a bid for governor, saying of his ties to militias, quote, becoming too closely aligned with militias. Is that a bad thing? And Trump's lies about the election cost American taxpayers at least $519 million. That comes from legal fees prompted by dozens of lawsuits, enhanced security in response to death threats against poll workers, repairs following the insurrection at the Capitol, and an astonishing $480 million for the military's deployment through mid-March. Day 21, February 9th. The second Senate impeachment of Trump is to open, putting him on trial for inciting a riot at the Capitol on January 6th. That trial appears to be on a fast track and could conclude in less than half the time of his first. The first day is to be taken up with constitutional arguments before House managers make their case. The ex-president urged a crowd to storm the Capitol building. At least five died in that incident. It is unclear whether Trump will be subpoenaed to appear in person. His lawyers have tried to paint the trial as partisan theater. Trump's attorneys argued in an opening filing that the insurrection of the Capitol was perpetrated by people, quote, of their own accord and for their own reasons, and not because Trump called on them to march on Congress and fight like hell. 
Trump's lawyers accused the House of engaging in political theater driven by Trump derangement syndrome and claimed Trump did not direct anyone to commit unlawful actions. He also did not direct the conduct of a small group of criminals because he was engaged in free speech protected by the First Amendment. Trump's lawyers have also called the trial unconstitutional, claiming that Trump cannot be impeached after leaving office. That last argument was undercut by Washington's leading conservative constitutional lawyer. Charles Cooper, who was closely allied with top Republicans in Congress, dismissed as illogical the claim that it is unconstitutional to hold an impeachment trial for a former president. He made that argument publicly in the Wall Street Journal. Cooper's stand is significant as he is a close confidant and advisor to many top Senate Republicans, including Ted Cruz of Texas, and has represented House Republicans, including the minority leader, Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, in lawsuits against Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And a man described as a leader of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group and helped to organize a ring of other extremists and led them in the attack last month at the U.S. Capitol has apparently held a top-secret security clearance for decades and previously worked for the FBI. Thomas Caldwell worked as section chief for the FBI from 2009 to 2010 after retiring from the Navy. Authorities say the Oath Keepers communicated during the attack about where lawmakers were. At one point during the siege, Caldwell received a message that said, quote, all members are in the tunnels under the Capitol. Seal them in and turn on the gas. Day 22, February 10th. The second impeachment of Trump opened in dramatic fashion, with House managers presenting a graphic sequence of footage of his supporters storming the Capitol last month. Senators viewed footage of rioters storming barricades, bleeding police officers, setting up a gallows, and yelling, Pence is a traitor, traitor Pence. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who is the leader of the House Democrats prosecuting the case, told senators, quote, that's a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there's no such thing. Raskin's presentation had senators wrapped as he closed with chilling details. Raskin lost his son to suicide the week before the riot. He said through tears that colleagues from both parties were calling their loved ones to say goodbye. House members were removing the lapel pins so they couldn't be identified by the mob as they tried to escape. In comparison, Trump's defense lawyer, Bruce Castor, opened with a slip, calling himself the lead prosecutor. It got worse from there. Castor spoke for nearly 10 minutes on the subject of a set of records called Gallant Men by former Illinois Senator Everett Dirksen that Gaster apparently owned as a small boy in Pennsylvania. He helpfully explained that records were, quote, that thing where you put the needle down. Castor digressed by saying, quote, you ever notice how when you're talking in your home state, it's my senator? He followed that by giving a brief and inaccurate history of democracy in Athens and Rome, as well as, quote, smaller countries that lasted for less time that I don't know about off the top of my head, before returning to the theme from gallant men that members of the Senate were upstanding people who would do the right thing. He also complimented the prosecution's presentation. As he spoke, senators in the chamber appeared confused and disinterested. That performance reportedly enraged Trump, who wondered why his legal team seemed surprised from the clips from the riot that the Democrats showed, even though the House managers had signaled for days that that was their plan. After both presentations, some Republicans joined Democrats to vote to proceed, ruling 56 to 44, it is constitutional to hold a trial for a president who is no longer in office. The trial continues. 
Following the attack on the Capitol, tens of thousands of Republicans switched their party affiliations. According to public records, nearly 140,000 Republicans quit the party in the 25 states that provide such data. Voting experts says the data indicates a stronger than usual flight from a political party after an election, as well as the start of a potentially damaging period for GOP registrations. Georgia prosecutors opened a criminal investigation into Trump's attempts to overturn that state's election results. Trump was taped on a phone call pressuring Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find him enough votes to overturn Joe Biden's win in Georgia. The move makes the state the second one conducting a criminal inquiry into the ex-president after New York. Trump potentially faces felony charges in Georgia. And Donald Trump vetoed a series of tack ads in the 2020 election campaign, including one that targeted Biden's behavior toward women because he was afraid of opening his own, quote, can of worms. Those ads proved so far-fetched, even he vetoed them. Day 23, February 11th. Trump was formally charged yesterday with incitement. At his impeachment trial, laid out a pattern of agitation and falsehood leading to a riot that left five dead at the Capitol. House managers argued that Trump propagated a big lie persuade supporters that his re-election was being stolen. In a sweeping narrative, prosecutors showed one video clip after another, showing Trump repeatedly falsely claiming the election was rigged and calling on his backers to fight like hell to keep him in power. The House, in a surprise, then aired unseen and graphic footage of the attack captured on security cameras. That footage, which was described as difficult to watch, showed people kicking in the doors to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office and attacking police with metal poles. Trump's defense is scheduled to begin tomorrow. Trump's ex-campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, reportedly offered a convicted ex-banker a pardon for a $300,000 fee up front, plus another $1 million of successful. Brad Birkenfeld said he was pitched twice by Lewandowski, who subsequently upped his fee to $500,000 and boasted he was meeting with Trump the next day to discuss pardons. Birkenfeld rejected both offers as shakedowns. And in the final months of the Trump administration, senior Justice Department officials repeatedly sought to block federal prosecutors in Manhattan from taking a crucial step in their investigation into Rudy Giuliani's dealings in Ukraine. They delayed a search warrant for some of Giuliani's electronic records. The actions by political appointees at the Justice Department in Washington effectively slowed that investigation as it was gaining momentum last year. And Twitter said in a statement that Trump's removal from their platform is permanent even if he runs for president and wins again. Just 39% of Americans are satisfied with life in the United States. That is the lowest number polled by Gallup in two decades. 61% of Americans approve of Biden's handling of his job in his first days in office. 52% of Americans want their senators to convict Trump in his second Senate impeachment trial. These are the Biden files. Nancy Clam chatted with Suzanne Pierre, a scientist dedicated to the liberation of human beings through deep understanding of and communication with the natural world. Suzanne discusses how oppression, supremacist ideologies, and extractive societies have shaped the natural environment at the micro and macro scales. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy airs every other Sunday at 5 p.m. So Suzanne, welcome to Spontaneous Vegetation this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. I am not sure how we're going to fit in a conversation in an hour, but we're going to do our best. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your practice your practice is really packed and layered, and I'm uh, very excited to talk to you today. Um, 
I want to, uh, I guess it, it's kind of conventional to start with like, um, what you were like as a little kid in, uh, New York state, but I thought you could maybe, um, talk about, um, some of the deep roots, uh, emotional roots, um, that has, um, underlying your work and, uh, whatever aspect you take. Um, and I'm assuming it's yeah. from childhood. Yeah. Um, I guess you could say it, it is. And, um, I'll start by saying and, and really claiming that I, I'm rooted in actually New Jersey. I grew up, um, oh. in central New Jersey and, and I, you're not wrong at all, Nancy. I did go to school for undergrad and graduate, graduate school in, in New York state. So, um, I have, you know, long connections to both spots, but, um, yeah, I, as a kid, um, growing up in, you know, suburban New Jersey, I think I, I was, uh, I, I had to entertain myself a lot of times. Um, me and, um, my three, my two siblings, the three of us would, um, spend a lot of time, you know, just kind of plodding around in the backyard, um, and keeping ourselves busy. Um, we had a lot of, uh, green space to play around in. And, um, and so that was how we spent a lot of our, our summers. And I was very, um, I guess one, one thread that I'm noticing and maybe have not before is that, um, I've always been kind of interested in, in engaging oneself intellectually and, and, you know, just sort of, um, in nature. And, um, that was true when I was a kid, just making up my own games, um, you know, creating crafts. We kind of, bootstrapped a lot of our home activities and um but that was our fun and um and I think that's really how I ended up spending spending time among um plants and gardening with my family and a lot of that um normalized being outdoors and being kind of barefoot in the soil for me at an early age well and um which is not necessarily a uh, common experience to what I've noticed a lot of people, um, particularly mm. more recent uh, generations, younger people, there's a lot of uh, fear based in soil mm. or just um, the aspect of being out, outside and also, frankly, n uh, not having an opportunity um, mm -hmm. to do that safely Um and uh, even broader ideas of just in encouraging um, children to explore their environments informally, right? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, so how did uh, this childhood find yourself, um, kind of get yourself into academia and specifically um, forest ecology and how carbon and nitrogen cycles work in mm -hmm. temperate forests? Well, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know that there's a direct link, um, you know, between me, ch child me, um, just messing around in the garden and, um, you know, playing in the woods and, um, me ending up becoming a <laughs> PhD holding, um, very tired person. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to think they're not related. Um, but, but you're certainly right that, you know, my, my early interest in nature, um, and like sense of playfulness in nature kind of started around that time and, and into high school. And I was lucky enough that while my high school, um, didn't have 
all of the, you know, fanciest AP and, um, you know, other, other courses that, that you, you could take elsewhere. We were lucky to have, um, an AP environmental course, um, environmental science course. So I think that had a little to do with it. That was probably the first time, you know, as like a senior high school kid, um, that I saw a diagram of the nitrogen cycle and the carbon cycle, which um, most people look at and they're like, um, is that just a pile of arrows? Like, why would I <laughs> want to stare at this all day? Um, and I was like, actually, I'm going to identify every arrow and what they mean. Uh, and I just found it fascinating and um, and everyone else was falling asleep. So um, that kind of influenced me. Um, and, I, and I did other kind of um, outdoor work experiences that I found um, really transformative for me too. I, I was um, interested in trail building. And so I did that um, for building in, uh, trails in the national parks um, in high school and in college. And um, just that sense of service um, of, hey, we use this land. Um, we, we get access to this land. It's not our land at all. And so at a minimum, we can can be kind of stewards um, to it. So those were those were some of my early days of of why forests, I guess, and um, and there's plenty more, and I won't bore you with every detail, but um, yeah, it kind of started that way. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast. Now, inspire curiosity, imagine science. That by using these sort of quantifiable methodologies or right. semi-quantifiable methodologies, you can hack your relationships, and or you can evaluate if the relationship you are a part of or perhaps just starting is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. If if they are worth it, if it is something that will that will uh, you know last and and be you know sustainable and fulfilling for everyone involved right. unlike so un- unlike a computer program sometimes you're coding something and you try to press compile and well there's an issue and so what happens is you get an error message there are just no error messages there are no er- error messages that are so obvious in um in relationships no uh it's and and, and that's something that i know i personally i wish that I had some of the more scientific understanding of compatibility that I do now Mm -hmm. when I was going through a lot of my relationship issues uh, as a younger man and sort of engaging with these individuals who perhaps were not very good for me and perhaps was not a pleasant time and, and, you know, I wish that I had a scientific way to have analyzed the situation I was in and and said, no, enough is enough. I'm tired of going to Sweet Tomatoes with you. I'm tired that this is the only thing you're willing to eat at this salad bar. I'm so sick of it. Um, And at the time, if if I had known these things at the time, I would have known that that issue with that specific salad bar mm-hmm. was a symptom of a deeper incompatibility. Right. There are just there are just people that you are incompatible with. There are ways that you are not utilizing the 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 benefits and correct strategies in your relationships that are making those relationships uh, not as good. And and you know as as time goes on, the goal is to learn those le- learn the warning signs and improve in your relationship so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about the 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 differences between good and bad relationships and and we're gonna we're separating those between uh between things that you know we're relatively uh familiar with 
those being green flags for good things and red flags for bad things. Right. So consider this merely as a number of scientifically backed tools with which you can determine if this this is, looks good or this looks bad. A green right. flag, red flag. Some scientists use electron microscopes. Some scientists use green flags and red flags. And we will be talking about the science that uses the latter. Yes. So let's start with green flags because let's start on a positive note. Right. I feel that's important. Mm -hmm. So one thing, and this is something I wish I had learned not to, to go back to the salad bar issue, mm -hmm. but a green flag, something that is very helpful in right. a relationship is that yeah. they their diet and therefore their body fluids have a similar pH range to yours. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.